0: Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God.
1: So, uh, we continue our discussion of pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and um, this week we're going to get into, uh, we're going to talk about Pentecost, and I had started talking about the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in in the New Testament era, and I felt like I actually got the cart before the horse a little bit, so I wanted to pause what we were talking about and go backwards, and let's begin at the beginning, so to speak, with the Um, what theologians refer to as the economy of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're going to read the account in Acts of Pentecost and the baptism of the Holy Spirit here momentarily, but something we want to not make the mistake of doing is acting as if the Holy Spirit shows up for the first time in the book of Acts, because as we've already studied, the Holy Spirit's been, uh, obviously he's, a member of the Trinity. He's eternal in the same way that God the Father, God the Son are eternal. And as we've studied, we did our whole Old Testament survey, the Holy Spirit is very active in the Old Testament, was very active in the creation of in itself, um, is the the breath of life, so to speak, in every human. And we, again, we've seen how the Holy Spirit's been involved in prophecy, the Holy Spirit's been involved in, um, in earthly government, and in uh, the anointing of, of people for various roles. But when we get to Pentecost, we are going to have, again, like what I said, they refer to it as the economy of the Holy Spirit, or some people might call it the dispensation of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit's full revelation is going to be on display, and the Holy Spirit's going to operate in the world in a unique way moving forward from um, Pentecost and the book of Acts. So, um, you know, the New Testament views Pentecost kind of like it views Calvary, which is, uh, it's multifaceted. There's a lot of things that happen on the day of Pentecost. It's, it's both a culmination and a kickoff. And there's a lot of symbolisms there. And we're not going to be able to even get all the way through a lot of the discussion of the, of the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts today. But we're going to start that process. So there's three stages of the relationship between Christ and the Spirit. And I don't know if this is turned too much for y'all. Make sure you can see that. Um, you know, stage one is the conception by Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit. We've studied that already. And then uh Christ's baptism, uh, when he receives the messianic anointing as the new Adam in Luke um, as an example, and he is filled with the Spirit, and as we've discussed at length, Christ in his earthly ministry was yielded and submitted to the Holy Spirit. And we discussed, uh, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, this very interesting thing about how, um, I mean, there's so many lessons to learn in this, but how, you know, the Son glorifies the Father so that in the end he ends up being the one glorified. And the Son yields to the Holy Spirit and then will in the end be the one that baptizes with the Spirit. And the Spirit will ultimately yield to the Son. We see this pattern happening. Um, so we have those two stages and i just thought it would be interesting to look at the book of acts in chapter 10 um He looks back, Paul looks back, and he says, You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with them. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. So this is a reference to this baptism that we saw in the book of Luke, that that the Holy Spirit was there at Christ's earthly baptism. And then the third phase is Christ's resurrection and ascension when he, who was himself baptized with water, begins to then baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he clothes his disciples with power from on high. Luke 24, 29 says, And look, I am sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you're empowered from on high. So Jesus understood that in baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. He was going to be ushering in a new age, and he was going to be fulfilling all this Old Testament prophecy. And um, he, you know, in a way, uh, metaphorically speaking, Jesus was baptized with fire in the life that he led, and in the passion uh, that was a baptism by fire, we could say. And then he's going to end up baptizing his people with fire, you know, almost literal sense in the upper room. And so his whole earthly life was kind of emotionally tied to that happening. If you look at Luke chapter 12, uh, it says, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze. But I have a baptism to undergo. That's his going to the cross and how it consumes me until it is finished. So he himself had been baptized with fire, and he was about to baptize with fire. And that's what leads us into uh, the day of Pentecost. So um, let's read together Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Could somebody um, take verses 1, chapter 1, 1 through 7? I got it. Okay. through
2: 7. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them, Not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority.
1: Okay, perfect. So then uh, let's skip to chapter 2, verses 1 through... Well, let's just recap, obviously, what's happening here. So Luke writes the book of Acts. He is obviously also the author of the book of Luke. Um, Luke was a companion of Paul in Paul's earthly ministry, and he was a, a physician... So he was an educated person, and when you read his writing in the original Greek, you can see it's the writing of a very educated man. And he sets out this account like a historian. He's very, um, he wants to be very precise in making sure that he gets the facts correct, because he's writing to this benefactor named Theophilus who has asked him to document these rumors that he's heard about this guy, Jesus, who, you know, they claim was going to be the Messiah and who seemingly rose from the dead. And so he says in the beginning here, I saw, you know, or Christ appeared to us, or he he, he rose from the dead through many convincing proofs. And he we know that he appeared to as many as 500 people at any given time in his resurrected state. And um One thing I'll just tell y'all that you can feel um, good about me being gone two weeks ago or last Sunday was um, I preached at an event and we had um, 10 new salvations at that service, which was an awesome thing. And one of the things I talked about during that service was this notion that Christianity is very unique and that Christianity is not primarily a set of philosophies or ideas on the buffet table of philosophical ideas that I could pick this one instead of that one. Christianity is not based in a concept, it's based in a person. It is a historical reality rather than a philosophical reality. It said for two thousand years this person's gonna show up and then the person showed up and now for two thousand years we've been talking about that Person, and so Jesus appeared to these people um, in the flesh, and this is you know part of the thing that the skeptic can't understand. And I even I used a bunch of data um, from scholarship that's modern scholarship, but the thing I'll just encourage you guys in is that in New Testament scholarship at the academic level today, it's pretty much just accepted that Jesus did actually rise from the dead. They've, they they don't really have any. Thing left I mean the swoon theory is gone the stolen body theory is gone the, the apostles conspiracy theory doesn't make any sense like all of these things they basically set them aside and I put up a quote from Bart Ehrman um, who is you know one of the leading atheist New Testament scholars in the world and basically his quote to summarize says yeah it probably happened but I just can't explain it so um, you know the scholarship is that he rose. so we have this thing so now what happened after he rose here in the book of Acts? They're like, okay, Christ is giving his last instructions, and he says to them, I want you to just wait on this thing I've been telling you is promised. It's about to show up. Don't do anything until that takes place. And that's, I'm summarizing what Christ's instructions were at the beginning of, of Acts. So now let's go to chapter 2 because these apostles are in what we now refer to as the upper room. And you're going to see there's 120 of them that are in this this place. So would somebody read chapter 2, verses 1 through 13?
3: And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak, Galileans, and how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes, Greeks, and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new (laughs) wine."
1: Okay, so if we were to skip down a little further, there's this quote later in chapter 2 from Peter's sermon to those who were listening down in the street below. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and and hear. So, Peter gives us this momentary glimpse into the events of history, this transaction between the Father and the Son, where the Son has requested of the Father that these promises that were made in the Old Testament be fulfilled, and then the Son is able to fulfill them. Now, there's two aspects of this promise that is referred to here. The gift of the Spirit is a central element in the New Covenant. Um, For instance, in Ezekiel chapter 36, it says, I will place my Spirit within you, and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So God promises in the Old Testament there's going to come a time when I'm going to be able to place my spirit inside you as a human. There won't be this external law that you're trying to align yourself with, but instead the law, as we're going to see later on, I'm skipping a little bit, will be inscribed on our very hearts and we will have the Holy Spirit enable us to observe the ordinances that's going to be one of the aspects of the new covenant that the messiah would usher in galatians refers to this it says the purpose was that the blessing of abraham would come to the gentiles by christ jesus so that we could receive receive the promised holy spirit through faith so the gift of the spirit is the inner essence of this promise that was made to abraham now just so we're all on the same page Pastor Wayne actually referred to it even today you know Abram which by the way he didn't mention this but something that's super interesting if you really trace everything historically who does Habakkuk who does God say is going to be used to bring justice to Habakkuk uh, the, Babylonians. the Chaldeans who were also the Babylonians right but they were being referred to then as the Chaldeans well back up there's a guy named Abram And he's called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a Chaldean. And Abram becomes Abraham. He can't have a child, right? He and his wife can't have children. They're 99 years old. And God says, no, 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 you will have a child. In fact, through that seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is the idea, like I said a minute ago, of a person is going to come. Like something that I talked about uh, in that message I referred to is... You know, I don't know if any of y'all have ever thought about this, but I used to think about this all the time. And that was that there was a sign of the first covenant. What was the sign of the early covenant? Does anybody remember what the sign was? Circumcision? That's correct. Circumcision. Now, what a bizarre sign. How is that a sign? That doesn't make any sense. Like you can't see it hopefully most of the time right <laughs> not to not to make us go in the wrong place mentally but for real like let's just be practical that seems like a odd sign does it not like why didn't they clip their ear or why didn't they get a tattoo why didn't they wear a special garment on their head put a dot on their head there's all these things that could have been something we would see as a sign no the reason it was a sign is because it was a reminder that it's gonna come through a baby That's why that was the sign, right? So that's the sign of the old covenant. So Abram is brought out. He's told, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, through your offspring. Well, how's that going to work? Here we fast forward and see the purpose was that the blessing would come to the world, the Gentiles. And again, um, I don't know if we've talked about this before. In the first century, you have in a couple of places you have two groups of people so for instance there was the romans and there were the barbarians you were either a roman or you were a barbarian we think of a barbarian as carrying a club and you know eating raw meat and like not being the very couth person right no all that meant was you weren't roman okay well In the same way, you had Jews and Gentiles. The entire world was either one of those two camps. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. So the whole world being blessed, that means it's the Gentiles. How is that going to work? It's going to come through the the Holy Spirit. And then if we look at Isaiah... There's another aspect that's going to emerge because the gift of the Spirit was promised to Christ in order to fulfill some Messianic prophecy. Isaiah 52.15 says, He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Isaiah 53.12 says, Therefore I will give him many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil because he willingly submitted to death and he was counted among the rebels yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels obviously predicting that the messiah would be put to death to pay for the sins of those who had rebelled against him that's us, that's us. exactly and then psalm 28 says Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So it's through the gift of the Holy Spirit to Christ and then the bestowal of the Spirit by Christ that the Father's promises of making the nations an inheritance of the Messiah is going to come about.
0: And the Messiah needs a throne, right? Correct. To come
1: back to? Correct. Um,
0: so you had the uh, just so everyone can know historically, uh, April fifteenth was the seventy third anniversary of of Israel becoming the nation. Mm-hmm. So I was telling my kids, I went to Abraham was going through, kind of, you know, it's been a long time since they've been a nation. Yes. Like four hundred something BC. Yep. And uh, there was wow, you know, that God's God is preparing by the Spirit a place for Jesus to come back to his his earthly throne
1: yeah so the fulfillment of the Great Commission is going to take place in the power of the Spirit and the Spirit is given so that Christ can bestow it upon the nations so we're getting a glimpse into this transaction behind the scenes of the Father is now fulfilling what he had promised to the Son back in the Old Testament and then that ends up taking place So Genesis 2, 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. In Abraham's seeds, all the nations on on the earth would be blessed. Going back to Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so we could receive the promised spirit through Faith. Okay. Any thoughts or questions on this? So, what we see at the day? of... Go ahead. Kind of makes
3: me think that the Bible is not this linear thing. It's like a fifty billion node matrix of interconnected like <laughs> things that this refers to this, and, mm-hmm. and then mat- the magnificence of God is the it's all, it's all in his mind and it's all interconnected and
1: it all fits and it will all fit when we get to heaven and look back Yeah, I love that, uh, Todd. I think that's right. I think that clearly God is operating in time but the more we dig into Scripture, the more we start to see all these points of connection that maybe we didn't quite grasp right off first blush reading, th- reading straight through it. You know, it's like um, the Bible, there's the old thing of, you know, the perspicuity of Scripture, right, which is the notion that you can read it and understand it, that it's just understandable. So the Bible is, is uh, you know, simple enough that a child could read it and understand what God's trying to say, but the depth of it is such that no theologian and philosopher, I mean, you could spend your whole life and never reach the fullness of the depths of what's being taught there. Yeah.
3: Um, he he sees all these connections, and somebody asked him, said, "Well, how do you how do you kind of see these patterns? He called them patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you start seeing those? And he said, I don't know. Read through Genesis fifty times. Yeah. And then all the patterns are in Genesis that filter out the whole Bible
2: mm-hmm. of what God is doing.
3: Um, and that the nations... The nations, I don't think we think of very much in Christian
2: America. Mm-hmm. Um, but the nations are important.
1: And we don't... I don't know. We, I don't think we grasp that. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we... And I think this is just a human problem, but we as Americans are very myopic, right? Okay. We think the whole world revolves... The universe revolves around the United States. Yeah. And clearly not. <laughs> Clearly not. And I just think about, you know, you talk about timeframes, you know, we've been here 230-ish years, 240-ish years. I mean, that's a blip on the radar. And we get so fired up about how like indomitable we are. And I'm like, y'all know this could, we're about that moment when this could all just go away, you know, and clearly there's a bigger, there's a bigger plan. It's funny that you mentioned that because that gets into one of the aspects of Pentecost and that is we begin to see the judgments that occurred in Genesis begin to be reversed Um, notice that Luke has a table of nations that he lists there Acts 2 8 through 11 how is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language Parthians Medes Elamites those who live in Mesopotamia in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. Well, this might remind us of another time we saw a table of nations, and that was the Tower of Babel. When the Tower of Babel is given, uh, it Actually, the tower part comes slightly after this because in chapter 10 of Genesis, which I'm going to show you, it's kind of seeing ahead a little bit. But in Genesis chapter 10, we have the, um, you know, the Tower of Babel, we have the confusing confusion of languages. And that's part of a curse. And we are given this table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 through 32. So it says, and I, I cut out parts because I just wanted to show you the, the emphasis on the language uh, t- of the, t- uh, the word languages in that text. But it says, these are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. From these descendants, the people of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans and their nations, each with its own language. These are Ham's sons with their clans according to their languages in the lands of their nations. And their nations. These are Shem's sons by their clans according to their languages in their lands and their nations. So, back in Genesis, part of the judgment of God, because they were trying to make man their God and seeing how look at all we can do if we come together, he divides their languages. Now, suddenly, we have a, the day of Pentecost. They're all speaking in a language that people can understand and they're declaring God's glory. And so, Part of the answer to the question that we're going to see these men ask in Acts chapter 2 verse 12 seems to be the reversal of Babel. And instead of the confounding of community, we're going to have the establishment of community. We're going to bring everybody into a single relationship. See, look at Acts chapter 2 verse 12. The men hear these people in the upper room speaking there's something crazy going on. They hear the sound of the rushing wind, and they're like, what? They were all astounded, perplexed, saying to another, what does this mean? Well, I think that it, a big part of it is this new community. By the way, in Acts chapter 115, I told you all this answer, but how many people were in the upper room? 120. 120. Well, scholars have discovered that in the Jewish law, or the, not, the, not the law in the sense of what's in Leviticus, the 613 laws, but in, you know, what was ended up being extrapolated from that, uh, it was considered that 120 people was what was required to establish a new community. And so here you have God establishing a new community um, in the upper room. The new community became the sphere in which the reversal of the effects of the curse are going to start to take place. This new eschatological thing, which eschatological meaning just the last days, the end of things, is going to begin in the upper room. And the effects of sin and the effects of the curse are going to start to get dialed back Um, people are going to start to be reconciled to each other people are going to be reconciled to God um, and they're going to possess one Lord one faith and one baptism you know we see that referred to in Ephesians chapter 4 therefore I the prisoner in the Lord urge you to walk worthy of the calling you received, with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope at your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in all
0: thanks for listening we pray this has been edifying if you've enjoyed the show please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is scottrossonline. That's scottrossonline, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.